Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, Managing Editor at Crosscut. And this week, I've been thinking about big, bold ideas and what it takes to turn them into society-shifting movements. Things are tough right now, and they're only going to get tougher. Thinking about the future is so daunting, I found myself instead looking to the past, to the times in this country's history when the fate of the Republic was hanging in the balance. It hasn't been difficult to find those stories. Our culture is obsessed with the moments of crisis that have shaped this nation. From the founding of the country to the Civil War, the New Deal, World War II, and the numerous battles for civil rights. The way we're told these stories, through books, films, and even songs, places so much emphasis on the decisive actions of individuals, whether it's Alexander Hamilton, Harriet Tubman, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, or John Lewis. But so often, it's a team that shapes a big idea, and a mass of people who are willing to fight for it, to work for it, or maybe just to vote for it. It's one of the great paradoxes at the heart of the American experiment. We're a country built on the idea of individual liberty, and yet that liberty has over and over again been renewed or improved through collective action. There's a trade-off here, a balancing, and one that not everyone believes is necessary. The viral videos of Americans refusing to wear masks reminds us of that fact. It's not the only reminder. It's so easy to be discouraged right now. It's difficult to see how a country as divided as this one can once again find common cause to move us all forward, free, together. I wonder if this is the way Americans felt in the moments before other decisive events, or whether the past I've been thinking about is indeed past, and the future really is unknown. This week I spoke with environmental policy expert Leah Stokes about a new plan from the presidential campaign of Joe Biden that seeks to fix the economy, fight climate change, and rectify racial injustices. It's a big plan. Leah says we should believe in it, but it leaves plenty of room for skepticism as well. Then later, I'll bring Crosscut News and Politics editor Donna Blankenship on to talk about the latest Crosscut Elway poll, which showed how Washingtonians are thinking about reopening the economy and wearing masks. But before we get to this week's interviews, I wanted to let you know about a new monthly virtual conversation series we're launching called Northwest Newsmakers. We'll be inviting the Northwest's most influential politicians, makers, industry leaders, and artists for live conversations with our journalists. We're kicking off the series on August 26th with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. We'll be talking with her about the federal government's role in our current crises, the November election, and the future of the Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives. For more information and to RSVP, go to crosscut.com events. Okay, on with the show. I'm speaking now with Leah Stokes. Leah is an assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where she works on energy, climate, and environmental policy. She's also the author of Short-Circuiting Policy, Interest Groups, and the Battle Over Clean Energy and Climate Policy in the American States. Leah, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. So we're going to talk about this big plan that the Biden campaign released earlier this month in a minute. But first, I was hoping you could give us a sense of how you view Joe Biden. 
It's fair to say that he hasn't been a leader on climate. Can you tell us about his reputation coming into the election? Well, I think during the primary, there were other candidates that were putting out more ideas on climate change and talking about it more. That's certainly what a bunch of the scorecards that were out there were saying, that we're looking at the amount that the candidates were talking about it, the amount of money they were sort of pledging towards it and their policies. That being said, as much criticism as Joe Biden got, and I certainly contributed to that in my own way, um, in fairness, he's gone way farther even before the most recent plan than previous Democratic candidates have gone. Uh, And I think that just shows that the entire field of the Democratic Party is moving in the right direction, which is recognizing that the climate crisis is on our doorstep and that we really have to act now. Could you indulge me and just tell me what your main criticism of Joe Biden has been? Well, um, during the primary, when the plans first came out, there were criticisms about the uh, scale of the plan, the amount of detail, the amount that um, Joe Biden was talking about it. I think if you contrast it with, for example, Jay Inslee, who was running basically on a platform of dealing with the climate crisis, or uh, Elizabeth Warren, who adopted explicitly last September's ideas from Jay Inslee's campaign, or Bernie Sanders, who came out with a comprehensive, very big ticket, $16 trillion plan on climate change. You know, there were just other candidates that were putting out a lot more ideas. I think Elizabeth Warren's campaign might have put out something like 14 climate plans. The Jay Inslee climate plan ran more than 200 pages in a PDF. And, you know, the Bernie Sanders ideas added up to 16 trillion. So there were just other people in the race who were talking a lot about it, developing ideas, putting it forward. And I think in fairness to the Joe Biden campaign, they they just weren't as policy focused during the primary. Um, That wasn't the kind of campaign they were running. And so we could make that criticism on climate, but actually you could probably make that criticism on a lot of different policy areas for the Joe Biden campaign because it just wasn't the emphasis. We knew that Elizabeth Warren was running with a plan, running with policy, and uh, the Joe Biden campaign decided that that wasn't the approach they were going to take. So we just didn't see the same kind of comprehensive set of ideas during the primary from the Joe Biden campaign. Were you surprised by this plan at all? No, I wouldn't say I was surprised. I was really excited. I saw that uh, the Joe Biden campaign had adopted a 100% clean electricity standard by 2035. And that is the number one thing I really, really wanted to see the Joe Biden campaign do. And I know a lot of groups were um, pushing them on that idea. And I think they were quite open to it. So I was hopeful that that would happen. I was really excited that it happened. And I actually had this moment like, wow. What if we actually do it? Like, what if we actually clean up the electricity system by 2035? It just felt real in a way that it hadn't before. So I think it shows that they're listening to so many activist groups that have been talking to them about these issues over the last couple months. So this plan, which we should note is called Build Back Better, is really an amalgam of other ideas from other places, other people and other candidates. When you look at it, whose fingerprints do you see here? Who deserves the credit? 
environmental justice groups are definitely key groups that made an influence here. So for example, there's a specific number in this plan, which is that 40% of climate investments will go to frontline communities, disadvantaged communities. And that is a number that comes from a big coalition in New York State that pushed to get uh, that same number written into the New York law last year, a big climate law. And I think what it shows is a recognition that air pollution uh, from fossil fuel combustion is really harming frontline black and indigenous and brown communities. And we need to make sure that as we clean up our energy system, that we are bringing those communities along. So environmental justice has definitely had a huge impact here. I would also say that Jay Inslee's campaign is very clearly an influence. You know, the Jay Inslee staffers have formed a new organization called Evergreen Action, which is really about trying to take the ideas that they developed during the primary, which again, were developed with frontline communities, environmental justice groups, activist organizations like the Sunrise Movement or the Sierra Club or all kinds of different groups working on these issues. Uh, and they, what their goal is at Evergreen Action is to really get these ideas into policy, ultimately into law. And I think also that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders clearly have had a big influence on, the, on these ideas. Like initially Joe Biden was pledging $1.7 trillion over 10 years. And the most recent uh, policy goes for 2 trillion over four years, which is about one eighth of the federal budget. And you know, that's much closer to what Bernie Sanders has been pushing as an idea. So I think that they're listening to a lot of people. So one thing you did not mention was the Green New Deal. Are you seeing an attempt to separate from that? Is the Green New Deal still too controversial to bring into general election politics? Although the Green New Deal is very popular, actually, as an idea, particularly if you don't use that term, what matters is the substance. And I think in many ways what happened to the Green New Deal as a resolution was that it entered the Democratic primary and it got fleshed out by Jay Inslee, um, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, uh, Julian Castro, lots of different campaigns kind of made pictures of what the Green New Deal looked like. Because you have to remember that the Green New Deal was a resolution. It was a kind of a framework document which said, We've got a big problem here. It's the climate crisis and it's also income inequality and racial injustices in terms of who bears the brunt of pollution. And we need to commit as a society over the next decade to changing how we operate so that we address climate change and income inequality along racial lines. I think the Green New Deal is very much alive and well here with the standards investment justice approach. Um, because keep in mind that before the Green New Deal, the whole approach was we just put a price on carbon, we just tax pollution. Mm -hmm. And that is not the way that the Joe Biden campaign is talking about it. So, you know, whether or not uh, it's explicit, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey definitely deserve a lot of credit for where the Biden campaign has gone. And I think that AOC's fingerprints are very much on these ideas as well. OK, so you were really excited when this plan came out, as you said earlier. You put out a thread with a few things you felt that people should really pay attention to. One of the things, I think the first thing you really focused on in the thread was energy efficiency. And energy efficiency is not a super sexy thing when you talk about climate policy, but you really focused on it. You said it's a key to the plan. So what does the plan lay out in terms of energy efficiency and why is it so important? 
Well, the first thing we really need to do to tackle the climate crisis, what I call the first linchpin globally, is cleaning up the U.S. electricity system. So if we can make clean electricity from wind and solar, uh, and even to some extent from the nuclear system that we already have operating, if we can make that clean energy on our electricity system, then what we can do is we can make our transportation clean through electric vehicles and buses, which is something that the plan talks about, and we can electrify our buildings. So your home right now is probably burning fossil gas to cook food or heat your home, and that's a fossil fuel. It's often called natural gas or methane. And we have to get rid of that in buildings all across the economy. We've got to get rid of oil and cars. And the way to do it is to clean up our electricity system. Now think of it this way. Not only do we need to clean up our electricity system so that all the things we already use electricity for can be clean, we then need to take other parts of our economy that are running on dirty energy, on fossil fuels, and clean those up too. Now that should pretty intuitively make you think that you're going to need more electricity, right? Because not only is your electricity system going to be clean, also your transportation system is going to be electrified and your buildings are going to be electrified. So that means actually that you don't just need kind of 100% clean electricity, you need maybe 200%. Uh, that's really difficult to do, right? Because it means that not only does the grid that we have today need to be clean, we need to kind of build it all again in the next 10 years. Mm. So the way to make that easier is to push on energy efficiency. Because if we can use less energy to drive our cars or to heat our homes or cook our food or light our you know, living rooms, then we don't need to expand the grid as much. And so mm. what the best estimates suggest that if we push on energy efficiency, we might only need to expand the grid by maybe 50% of where it's at today. So we'd have to clean up the 60% that's dirty right now and build another 50% that is clean on top of that. So that's an enormous amount of work to do, but it's a lot easier than having to build the grid all over again. So for every uh, what we call a kilowatt hour or just unit of electricity that we do not use, then we don't have to make it clean, right? We just cannot use it in the first place. So centering energy efficiency is really important. And I'll, I'll say one more thing about energy efficiency. It's a really great way to create jobs. Think about all the buildings that we have across this country that are running on fossil gas right now. If we want to electrify them, there's going to need to be somebody in your community, a contractor, a, a small business owner who comes to your home and removes that fossil gas or makes it more insulated, replaces your windows. Those jobs cannot be taken overseas. And it's an enormous amount of work. Think mm. about all the homes in your neighborhood, all the homes in your city, all the homes in your state. We would need to change all of them. And they bring jobs back to parts of the economy, the Rust Belt states that uh, have been having a hard time um, and will have a hard time with the fossil fuel transition. So I think it's a really smart approach. And I think there's tons of potential to be doing um, innovation in the US that then creates manufacturing 
manufacturing in the U.S. And Joe Biden throughout the entire primary has been extremely focused on innovation and research and development in the energy sector. And I think that's smart because there are some things like heavy industry that are going to be hard to decarbonize and that we do need to do more research on. Um, but that means also that the United States can be a leader globally if we unlock some of that innovation, then it can lead to high paying manufacturing jobs in the US. So um, I'm hopeful. And I'll say one other thing. The plan also borrows an idea from Jay Inslee's campaign for a climate conservation corps, which is um, the idea that young people all across the country, uh, including women and people of color, can be put to work on public lands, doing conservation work, doing emissions reduction, doing resilience. So that's a really creative and neat and new idea. Um, and I think the point is, when you take the climate crisis seriously, there is so much work to be done. So there's enough work to go around within the United States, within other countries. If the whole planet were to take the climate crisis seriously, we wouldn't have an economic crisis or an economic problem because there would be so much work to do. So this plan is a silver bullet, right? I mean, that's how it's being presented. It, it addresses the economic recovery. It addresses the climate crisis. It helps address the crisis of racism in America. It really attempts to take on all the major issues in America that are at the forefront right now. And I wonder, when you think about how this plan will get whittled down into actual legislation, do you fear that it will lose too much climate in the interest of addressing the other aspects of what is trying to be accomplished here? Or are all these things so interwoven that it's impossible to pull one out without the whole thing falling apart? Climate change uh, touches everything because fundamentally our economy is tightly, tightly linked to the combustion of fossil fuels right now. And that has massive implications for black communities in particular. I wrote a piece in the Boston Globe last week, which talked about how our fossil fuel system is racist. If you want to look at where we put coal plants, it's in black communities overwhelmingly. If you want to look at who, you know, is having stillborn children or miscarriages because of heat from climate change or pollution from fossil fuels. It's black mothers. You know, the issue of racial injustice is very much tied up with the fossil fuel economy because we create these sacrifice zones, these parts of our society where we put our toxic fossil fuel extraction and combustion, and that is in black communities. If you look at the Southeast, I wrote a report recently with Stacey Abrams's um, think tank, the Southern Economic Advancement Project. And across the Southeast, there are a number of utilities like Southern Company, for example, which operates Georgia Power, Alabama Power. They maintain all these coal plants that if they were shut down tomorrow, would save ratepayers money. These coal plants are extremely expensive. They literally cost people money to keep them open. But the utilities keep them operating because they have debt on those coal plants and it's in their financial interest to keep them open. It's not in the financial interest of the ratepayers because it costs more money. And it's not in the financial interest of black people living downstream from coal 
pollution, who are breathing in dirty air and paying for it with shortened lives. The asthma rates within black communities are so much higher than within white communities because of our fossil fuel-based system. So, you know, we've ignored this part of climate change for a very long time, and we haven't centered environmental justice as much as we should. And I think that's why the Green New Deal framework is so important, because it says racial justice is the same as climate justice. Income inequality is as much a problem as a, for our economy as it is for climate change. If you think the solution to climate change is let's just raise everybody's electricity bills by putting a price on carbon, you are ignoring the fact that right now, one in three Americans struggles to pay their energy bills. And that doesn't even take into account the coronavirus recession and all these people out of work. I can only imagine that that statistic has gone way up since um, so many people are struggling with the COVID um, pandemic. So, you know, people can't afford to pay their energy bills because we don't pay people enough money because wages have stagnated. And then if, if we wanna solve the climate crisis and our only solution is to make things more expensive, not think about how the fossil fuel economy has led to concentration of wealth within a few companies, within a few people, and that so many people can't even afford to pay their energy bills, then we are not going to solve the problem. In the places where a carbon price has been put into place, we've often seen backlash against it. And sometimes people say, well, okay, then the solution is to just give the money back to people. Well, they've been doing that in Canada. They put a price on carbon and they've been giving money back. And I have several colleagues who've been studying that in a very high quality way. And what they find is that it doesn't matter to people. They don't care. They're not getting enough money back. And that sticker at the pump or on your electricity bill in terms of how much more it costs is way too visible. So we need to take an investment and equity and standards-based approach to solving this problem. So, you know, when you understand these crises are linked, then the solutions you bring to the table are about standards, setting the rules for big polluters, investment, saying the government is going to pay for this rather than pushing the costs onto everyday Americans who are struggling to pay bills and that justice will be at the center because we have been putting our pollution into black communities and indigenous communities for way too long. So I think the analysis that views these crises as linked is more truthful in terms of what this crisis is. And it also leads us to a solution that is way more likely to solve the problem. Is the United States Congress, though, capable of passing something this big to address that whole cloth? They may not be saying Green New Deal, but the scope of this is New Deal scope. This is the re-engineering of a major portion of this nation's economy. And it just feels mm -hmm. beyond what's possible now in terms of legislation. Look, I think your cynicism is well placed. And I think where these problems are going to happen is if there's a bill, what committees in the House and the Senate or are they assigned to? Who controls the Senate, right? Like, these are very big problems. So few Democratic representatives understand the climate crisis. Um, I know this in part because I did this research where we surveyed chiefs of staff and legislative directors, which are the most senior staff that help representatives and senators make decisions about how to vote. And we asked them, do you think the public cares about climate change? And um, they dramatically underestimated support, even Democrats, not just Republicans. Um, Republicans were much worse at getting the correct level of concern and support for climate action amongst the public. But Democrats were 
are quite bad too. And what we show is the more that representatives are meeting with fossil fuel companies or organizations like the American Petroleum Institute, the more they're taking money from these organizations, the worse job they do at guessing the support that exists out there. So, you know, the Democratic Party has been very slow to wake up to the climate crisis. And I think it's still viewed as a kind of niche issue, right? Like, oh, that'll be dealt with by an, an environment committee, you know, or that's some small slice of the economy. No, this is going to be the center of our economy because carbon emissions are actually correlated with GDP. And therefore, what we have to do is break that relationship. So this is about economic policy. And when we think about a recovery, we should be thinking about climate action because we have to use this crisis as an opportunity to rebuild our economy. And I am very concerned that there are some people who um, are the heads of specific committees in the House, for example, that don't understand that, that, that view climate as a niche topic or think, oh, well, this is just the right way to do, to do taxes or this is the right way to deal with the problem and don't understand that if we do not get the climate crisis right, if we don't start driving down our emissions in 2021, we will miss our last window of opportunity to do it because we've already warmed the planet by one degree Celsius. Where I live in Santa Barbara, we've warmed it by two degrees Celsius, right? Like there are parts of this country that are already on the front lines with hurricanes, heat waves, fires, drought, and we can't procrastinate any longer. So yeah, this very big, bold idea is going to face an uphill battle. And the only hope that we have is uh, for social movements to say, this is a priority. This has to get through the committees. It needs to be assigned to the correct committees um, and it needs to be made a priority. And there are going to be competing priorities. Now, the one benefit is if we tie climate to all the other issues like racial justice and economic stimulus, maybe it'll get a higher priority than if it were to stand alone. I've done public opinion research on the Green New Deal and People do want climate change to be treated in this comprehensive way. It's actually more popular to view climate change as an investment and job creation opportunity than just sort of a niche environmental issue. So this approach creates problems and it creates opportunities. And um, how it will go, who can say? But certainly the stimulus is a place for climate action. And I'm hopeful that that will be the top of the Democratic agenda in 2021. All right, I've got one more question for you. What happens to the climate movement if Donald Trump wins? Um, it's bad because not only does Donald Trump not sort of keep us where we are in a status quo treading water situation where we're just doing a little more emissions every year and going in the wrong direction on climate change. He actually has been undoing an enormous amount of the progress that we've been making, right? He's been trying to roll back clean car standards. He's been rolling back public land protections. He's been putting people into authority positions at the Department of Energy, at the Environmental Protection Agency, who are basically lobbyists in the past for the fossil fuel industry. And they are doing the bidding of the fossil fuel industry. So this administration 
is a friend of the fossil fuel industry. They give subsidies to the industry and bailouts. The Trump administration is extremely bad news for the health of Americans because of the amount of pollution that they are increasing in this country, the lack of enforcement that they're doing when it comes to pollution. It's very bad for Americans' health to have this administration in place. Um, globally, I think other countries will start to take the lead, hopefully, on manufacturing, innovation, cleaning up emissions. You know, if you look at what Greta Thunberg is doing, she's lobbying the EU to do more on green stimulus. Unfortunately, we don't really have a lot of other countries that are taking the lead on climate change in the way that we need. We really do need the United States to be the global leader, but if they're not, then we can find other venues because climate change is a problem for all countries in the world. So, you know, it maybe it'll be a time to get the EU to make even more progress. Um, but yeah, it'll be bad news. There's no way to cut it. The stakes in this election when it comes to the climate crisis are huge. And if I have a choice between a climate denying Donald Trump and Joe Biden, who wants to spend one eighth of the federal government budget on climate change, I would pick Joe Biden. All right. That's Leah Stokes. She's the author of Short Circuiting Policy, Interest Groups and the Battle Over Clean Energy and Climate Policy in the American States. Leah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Hi, my name is Agatha Pacheco Flores, and I'm a staff writer on the Arts and Culture Desk here at Crosscut. So this pandemic and the protests are big news stories, but they're also big culture stories. In the past few months, we've been trying to get beyond the stats and the breaking news to explore how these events are changing the ways that we live and express ourselves, whether that's through socially distanced photography or politically charged graffiti. All of this reporting is free for you, but it does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news source, we count on support from our readers, viewers, and listeners like you to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com donate. Okay, back to the show. I'm on now with Donna Blankenship, the news and politics editor at Crosscut. This week, Donna and her team have been reporting on CrossCut's latest statewide poll, which asked registered voters from across Washington state about the pandemic, policing, and the governor's race. Donna authored our story looking at respondents' attitudes toward reopening the economy during the current rise in coronavirus cases. Donna, what did the poll show us? It showed us that most people in Washington are very concerned about coronavirus still and that the majority um, felt that we should slow down the reopening or um, maybe even pull back some. So we polled on this about three months ago in April when the pandemic was still relatively new. Have attitudes shifted? They've shifted a little bit. There's more of a partisan divide between who's for holding back and who's for pushing forward. Last time we found that a wide majority of Washington voters thought we should be more concerned about health than about reopening the economy. So that seems to be shifting a little bit. You said that there's a partisan divide here, but are there any other groups that are tending to go one way more than the other? Our poll found that urban and suburban voters 
were more concerned about pulling back a little on the reopening and rural and small town voters wanted to push forward more. Um, I think that people where there have been fewer coronavirus cases are not as connected to the problem and also think, you know, it's not rightly so that it's not as big a problem in their small towns and in their rural areas. There's an urban-rural divide then essentially here, and it's based on kind of exposure. But we Mm -hmm. also ask a question about how many of the respondents have actually had direct exposure to the coronavirus itself, whether contracting it themselves or somebody in their family or somebody that they know contracting it. And those numbers went up quite a bit from April, right? Yes, those numbers went up, but they didn't change attitudes about opening up or um, staying closed. Um, The only connection that I found that was interesting was it seemed like the closer your connection to coronavirus, the more strict you are about wearing a mask. Okay, so this is another one of the questions that we asked is essentially whether or not people are wearing masks. What was surprising to me was there wasn't as much of a political divide on those questions as I expected. It seems like most people in Washington are wearing a mask anytime they're out in public or away from home when they can't um, distance six feet Mm. away. And it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're probably going to be wearing a mask when you're not home. What percentage of people just aren't wearing masks at all? Oh, very small percentage. Um, four, four percent. And were you surprised by that number? Yes, I was surprised it was so small. But so what? So why do you think it was surprising to you then? Oh, just because of what you see on social media. Right. Even as a journalist, I'm constantly... Um, reminded that the few loud voices on social media don't really represent the general Mm. public. And um, that's why a lot of people can disconnect from social media and still live a perfectly happy life. (laughs) Um, So speaking of, you know, happier things, uh, one of the things that I know that you love to do with these polls is to actually talk to the respondents, the, the people who we surveyed, because they're always more uh, complex and interesting than um, we expect them to be, I think. So tell me tell me about the people that you talked to for this story and um, and how they helped enlighten you to what's going on out there. Um, so, yes, um, I, th- I think um, you're absolutely right. People are more complex than um, we think we think they are just from, well, once again, social media. I talked to a conservative woman in a small town north of Seattle who told me um, she is absolutely strict about her mask wearing. Um, She had a grandson who got coronavirus um, because he was at a party where everyone got it. And this was in June. Although she did say she thinks we should continue to open up the um, country and open up our state, um, she also was very felt very strongly about people following the rules, the um, social distancing and wearing a mask. And then I talked to a, um, a Democrat from Seattle who's a um, public school teacher, and it took until she actually knew of someone who actually had been sick before she started getting worried and serious about coronavirus. Mm. So the two of them could meet if we were allowed to meet each other. And they'd probably have a lot in common, even though 
one says she's for sure going to vote for Inslee for um, governor, and the other one says she's for sure not going to. So that's another thing that we touched on with this poll is, of course, we have um, a gubernatorial primary coming up, uh, governor's race uh, this November, where Inslee is running for his third term. What do people think about the job that Inslee is doing on the pandemic response? And how is that informing how they feel about him as um, a third term governor? His overall rating is um, 49-49 approval rating, like 49 positive, 49 negative. His coronavirus rating is a little better than that. He's 51% positive, 46% negative. Mm. And according to Stuart Elway, our pollster, those are amazing numbers for the a second-term governor at the end of his term. He looked back at Washington governors from the last, you know, couple decades and found um, Inslee appears to be probably one of the most popular ones for second-term hmm. governor. You know, as you know, we only polled registered voters, so these are people who could actually vote in the governor election. There's a very large undecided number of 24%, but Inslee has 46 you know, so far, and all the Republican candidates have, um, most of them have single-digit right. Um, support. Right. So that's that's going to be a long primary for those folks. Mm. So, Donna, what's the takeaway from the pandemic portion of this poll? What What does it make you feel like the future holds for the state? Are people feeling pretty good about how we're responding? Where, where are we going from here? I think people say one thing one in one part of the poll, and they say something else in another part of the poll. But in general, it looks like most people in Washington are putting some trust in our governor to kind of lead us slowly toward reopening, and they don't want to go any faster than we're already going. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we know from listening to the scientists and from um, hearing the numbers for um, new cases of coronavirus that we're having more new cases daily on average than we did at the peak of of this. The difference is fewer people are dying. So that's a really good thing. The treatments are better, uh, Mm -hmm. but people are still getting sick. I I think it's going to continue to be a slow go. And I know people are getting really frustrated with this staying at home. I I certainly am. And um, but I don't think it's changing anytime soon. Donna, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us a little bit about this latest poll. Uh, Stay safe. Be well. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Bye bye. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Donna and to Leah Stokes for joining me. This episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.